Welcome to In the Lead with UCEA, bringing you pivotal conversations with people making an impact on educational leadership preparation, practice, and policy. I'm Monica Bern-Jimenez, Executive Director of the University Council for Educational Administration. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Richard Gonzalez, Director of Educational Leadership Preparation Programs at the University of Connecticut. You might know UConn as one of the top leadership preparation programs in the country involved in UPPI. So how did faculty at UConn decide that it was time to redesign their program? And how did faculty work together to grow trust and strengthen their relationships in order to create an innovative program? Listen to find out. Welcome to In the Lead with UCEA, Richard. Thanks, Monica. Great being here. Let's just start off, if you could tell us about how the faculty at UConn decided to pursue this initiative. Well, for a couple of years before the Wallace UPPI initiative, our program had undergone a considerable amount of growth and change. We had the traditional two-year program, which had operated for 20 plus years. But as part of two other particular needs in the state, we had developed different specialized tracks in addition to the traditional program. The first was called Preparing Leaders for Urban Schools, and that was in response to the Hartford Public Schools request for a partnership to better develop a talent pool for the principalship in that district. The second was part of reform legislation that was passed in 2012 under then-Governor Malloy, and that focused on preparing turnaround school leaders. So prior to UPPI, we had operated a traditional program that was working just fine, but we responded to two particular needs in the field to diversify our programming. So that means when the call for proposals came out, when the announcement that the UPPI opportunity would be there. We were having a little bit of an identity crisis at that point. And at that particular time, I had recently taken over as director and I had implemented a bit of a shared leadership structure where some legacy instructors, people who had been with us for a while, educators who had standing in the field and just were very active and very caring, not only about the work in K-12 and public schools, but the preparation program at UConn. We had formed a lead instructor group. And so when I made that group aware of the opportunity, we discussed what would it take? Why would we do it? And we agreed together very, very quickly that the opportunity would be wonderful in and of itself just to apply and perhaps be selected and get funded to do what the call for proposals asked, which was to think about changing, redesigning in order to better meet the needs of the field. Hmm. But I go back to we were having a bit of an identity crisis and we realized that we were at a critical juncture with or without UPPI. We were going to have to decide 
Are we going to remain three tracks of one single program? Are we going to perhaps become three programs, go down to two? Well, who are we? Who will we be going forward? So UPPI for us was a bit of an easy decision because it gave us permission and the space to make decisions about who we would be, what UCAP would be going forward. And I think it's fair to say, long story short, what we decided as a part of our participation in UPPI was that we would carry forward and redesign, bringing forward the best parts of all three designs that we were operating prior to UPPI to make the current version, which is the third generation of our program. And so here locally, we refer to it as UCAP 3.0. So really sort of building off of the strengths and the work that had already begun in response to those two needs you mentioned. Absolutely. And then the need to once and for all decide whether the traditional programming would prevail. And aside from just different structures, there were some philosophical differences there. The plus and the residency designs really took into account a particular weakness of the traditional design. And that was whom we were serving, which candidates, which districts we were partnering with, and where our graduates would go and work upon completing the program. Now, of course, we did have some individuals from urban districts prior, but they were relatively few. And of course, we did have some graduates go and work in urban settings, but that was relatively few compared to the whole. What changed leading up to UPPI, and certainly since UPPI, is the diversity of our applicant pool, our current students, our graduates now for four years running and where they are working. So I would say we are doing better at fulfilling our mission of preparing leaders from and for every school community in the state of Connecticut. Well, that's actually a great segue to my next question about how the faculty work together to overcome challenges. The best thing about having folks involved in the decision about whether to move forward is they're invested in the work early on. The initiative, once we were accepted into UPPI, and thus the challenge, and then the challenge to redesign. Where do you begin? What exactly will we change? What on a relative scale is broken? And I say on a relative scale because it's really important to note that in our story, we had been written about at that time recently by scholars and national reports for having been an innovative program and a program that used successful design features. We also had a very high graduation rate. We had a very high success rate on the certification exam. And when I say very high, I'm talking like 90, 95% plus. Virtually everyone would graduate. Virtually everyone would earn the certificate. Everyone would pass the exam and more than likely on the first attempt, and many of our graduates were getting jobs. So I think what looking back and telling the story now is making me aware is I think it took a lot of courage by the members of the faculty at that time. I was a relatively new faculty member. I was the new director. But if you're thinking about folks who many of them had graduated from the program, many of them were alumni and represented the university, not only as members of the faculty, but graduates of the various programs and leaders in the field. I think it was a bold move for them to decide to support the change. So how did we overcome the challenges? UPPI was a bit structured by the Wallace Foundation. 
in terms of giving us tasks to think about the work, to prepare the work, what I think the Institute for Learning out of Pittsburgh calls organizing for effort. So we did a self-study. That was one of the very first things that all participants in UPPI had to do. So we used the quality measures tool for leader preparation programs. And that gave us data that helped us understand where our strengths were, where the areas of potential improvement were going to be. And from there, we prioritized in a very common sense way, like which ones will make the greatest difference? Which ones do we stand ready to do something about now? Which things, even though we would like to change now or get started, perhaps are going to require other things to change or be put in place before we get there. So how we did that was the same group that was a part of the decision to apply took leadership roles in the various committees. And the various committees were structured or organized around the core features of the program. They paralleled the domains of the quality measures. One committee studied the coursework. One committee studied the clinical experience or what we call the internship. Along with the coursework, that committee examined the assessment. So it's a different domain in the quality measures tool, but that committee took on in essence, what was curriculum instruction and assessment. We also had a separate committee that looked at other features like graduate satisfaction and then data for all things operations and then impact that we were having. So there was a lot of conversation along the way. Wallace was very helpful because they gave us a loose structure to follow that we could operate within, make decisions for ourselves, but there was just a lot of conversation. And I think one of the things that we got right was we didn't do it as a small team. We did it as a relatively large team. It was myself and two colleagues that were the point. Dr. Sarah Wolfen, who was at UConn at the time and is now at the University of Texas, she played an instrumental role in the curriculum instruction and assessment portion of the self-study, the discussion about the visioning, and then the preliminary planning for improvement. Jen Michno, a, at the time, doctoral student, former principal and alum of the program, led the work in that area and then assisted me in other areas beyond just those two main areas. We were the core team of organizers for the work, but each of those committees or work groups, if you will, were comprised of about five different members of the faculty, most of whom were adjunct faculty members and current practitioners in the field. And it's important to note at this time that back then and still today, we only hire superintendents and assistant or deputy superintendents. And there are reasons for that, but they were key leaders. And so they brought the insight of knowledge from the field, but then they also were important to messaging out in the field about the changes that we were making and that the whole point wasn't change for change's sake. It was change to improve, to better align to the reality of the work and then the particular needs of the districts. Yeah. And that's a great connection. And you're sort of talking about this already, but around how faculty have taken leadership throughout the program redesign effort. 
So if you could talk a little more about how that happened. Absolutely. So the early structure that we brought to it were the lead instructors. And those lead instructors then became like co-chairs or co-leaders of the various committees or work groups. But then those work groups would ultimately come back and the lead instructors as like a shared governance structure along with me as director would make decisions. We would review the outcomes from the self-study. We would review the discussions of the work group. We would review the preliminary proposals for improvement. And then as a core team, if you will, I, I never called us that, but as a core team for the improvement work, make decisions together about what we would take on and then prioritize sequence, et cetera. They would basically then give me the charge and then I as director would go to work. Interestingly enough, we began as did the majority of the programs in UPPI or the other universities in UPPI. We began with coursework because, hey, we're higher ed. That's where it begins and ends, right? It begins with the syllabus. It begins with the course sequence, the program of study. We figured out that that wasn't going to work for us. And so we ran into a bit of a dead end and had to start all over. Because what we found was despite our best efforts, despite really knowledgeable, capable, and experienced leaders who know better, we were recreating the old courses and basically moving all the old stuff from the syllabi into the new stuff, but just giving it a new name. Mm -hmm. And we began to recognize that. And I'm grateful for the structure and the culture that we had. I don't think if we hadn't brought forward the existing leaders who were in place before UPPI and who had made that decision, I don't know that we would have had the rapport and the freedom to call out honestly what we saw. And so we had to have some difficult conversations about, is it me or is this just a repackaged version of the old, right? Mm -hmm. Because we said the new version would prioritize competencies and that the new coursework would aim to support the development of competencies, but all these assignments were the same. Mm -hmm. And if our initial read was that the old assignments were not producing competencies, <laughs> how in the world would bringing them forward result in any real change? So... Mm -hmm. That ended up being the key. We realized you can change course objectives, you can change readings, you can change a lot of things in the syllabus. But the one thing that is going to drive any significant change are going to be the assignments and the assessments. And so we went back to the drawing board. Candidly speaking, that was a bit of a crisis moment for me because it became uncomfortable as the representative of the university to go back to the Wallace table and not say that we failed, but kind of look like and feel like maybe we had failed because the other universities were moving forward just fine mm -hmm. by starting with the coursework redesign. But that didn't work for us. And so I had to admit it didn't work for us. And we're going to try something different, fingers crossed. And thankfully for us, that was a terrific decision because, again, I go back to very experienced K-12 educators around the table, including myself and the folks that were helping me co-lead it. We knew backwards design. We understood the idea that what gets assessed gets taught, right, in terms of curriculum and instruction follow. We knew that, of course, but yet we just stayed within the norms or the paradigm, the operating paradigm of higher ed of just build the syllabus first. Well, that didn't work. What we did was we started with assignments and then we even realized the assignments are better, but it's still not quite what we had in mind. And so then that resulted in us trying out something 
totally different that we weren't aware that others were doing at the time. And to date, I don't know how common the practice is, but we did find an example where there were independent projects that students completed outside of the coursework as part of the internship. And lo and behold, surprise, we found two examples. One of those places happened to be with the institution that was mentoring us, mm. the University of Illinois, Chicago. And Dr. Cosner and her colleagues have written about the importance of structuring assessments so that they help the candidate make sense of their own leadership journey and their own leadership learning, but that they rely on a very synchronized and coordinated decision-making structure and sequence of the courses and the clinical experiences to do leadership work in a way that helps the candidate prepare for the reality of the work. So credit to them, because as mentors, they never came in and said, hi, here's what we do. Just do what we do because we're excellent already. They didn't do that. They talked to us about their process for engaging in change. They allowed us to come to this decision on our own. And then when we were ready, they were like, we have some examples that we can show you. We ended up reviewing what they do and deciding that that wasn't going to be a great fit for us for a variety of reasons. No judgment. It was just their program is structured very differently than ours. Their candidates have different field experiences coming in and then during the time that they're with them. So there just wasn't going to be that same opportunity. So just replicating what was successful for them didn't make sense. However, we were able to benefit not only from the concept that they were good at, but they were able to really help us think through ideas for design, ideas for piloting that they had figured out through their own work. And today we have four project-based assessments, which we refer to inside the program as the core assessments. And they are aligned to the competencies that are prioritized by the state of Connecticut in our standards here locally, but they're pretty universal. But again, we undertook this together. We tried things together. We realized and we admitted honestly to one another, this is not anything new or different, not good, not okay. And we decided to try something different. And we worked on, if it wasn't going to be the coursework first, what would it be? We went to assignments, did make that better and said, we can still do better. And once we finally arrived at the core assessments, that was great. The next major challenge that the faculty played a huge role in shaping was with our emphasis on equity, because we had not by design, no one had ever decided and there was no conversation or master plan that we would be race neutral or colorblind or any of that in our work. We were highly technical. We talked about issues, problem solving, school improvement, but we didn't really foreground equity in a way that we wanted to try to do in this redesign. Mm. And that was something that was done. It wasn't decided by me, anyone else, or a small group. Just like everything else we had done prior to that time, we decided this is something we want to be true in the redesign. And so it was a collective decision. There was no vote, but there was clearly everyone or most folks on board. The biggest challenge then became mine as director because I had to develop first what would be a definition of equity that we could then organize around and build into our coursework and into our assessments. And that is one of the best stories of our redesign. 
I assembled, and this has been rare, I've only done this twice ever in the 10 years that I've been director, but I assembled everyone in person, this was pre-COVID, in Hartford, and so folks came, left their jobs, and we all met as a faculty, and in fact, everyone was there. And we talked through where we were in the redesign, what it was looking like, the core assessments, great, all good. When we got to the conversation about equity and the developing or the first draft of the equity statement, I put up on the screen what I was pretty darn proud of, something that several of us had worked on and had vetted and folks had said, yeah, this is good. So we read it and then there was the awkward pause and you could tell that there was something there, but nobody was going to go first. I don't remember still to this day who it was, but someone broke the ice. And boy, once they did, the conversation just began flowing. But here's the gist of what they said. This is actually a statement that I'll never forget because it was a defining moment for us. Is this who we really want to be? This statement is nice, but it doesn't stand for anything. We have the opportunity to take a stand for what we are about. Tell the students, tell the people, tell the districts and the field, tell the state of Connecticut what they can count on from our graduates and tell the communities our people will work They'll be as good technically as they ever have been. They will know and they will prioritize these things as well. It wasn't any more easy of a problem to resolve that guidance, that feedback, but it was liberating at the same time because that nice draft of a definition that I had was compiled from some of the best sources out there. And to their credit, they said, it reads nicely. Goodness. I mean, who'd be against that? But at the same time, what does it say? And so they sent me back to the drawing board and every single member of the faculty ended up reviewing what it took a couple of iterations for us to get to. But what we decided was we would not have a definition of equity for our program because that was a challenge in and of itself. Instead, what we have is a statement of an equity commitment. And so it's now a position statement about who we are and the leaders that we aim to prepare. And it defines characteristics that we want to be true about our graduates and that we hope that they will employ or that will define them as practitioners in the field. Yeah. Powerful stories. Thank you for that. I think the last question, and you've alluded to this a couple of times already, I think, but about the lasting impact of having been a part of this process on your faculty and their relationships? Oh, my goodness. So I'm grateful to those folks who were there at the beginning, who signed on to take on the challenge of redesign. I'm grateful for them having my back to completely redesign. So remember, we had been recognized and successful by many accounts, by many indicators or by any metric. We were a successful program. And UCAP 3.0, the third generation of our program, is completely different. The courses are different. We switch from a traditional supervision model in the clinical experience to leadership coaching. And that's just not a change in terms. It is a change in role and function. We have core assessments that are independent projects that had never been done before. And most importantly, with the support of the faculty, with the help 
assistance of the faculty. We've redesigned again. We've completely changed two of the instructional leadership courses because while they were a good start, they weren't what we thought was just right and we thought we could do better. They proposed it, they worked on it, and then we moved it through the curricula and courses committee. We're about to change our program of study one more time because our redesign began pre-COVID and post-COVID. We're very mindful of things like social, emotional learning, self-care, life-work balance. And with the assistance of our students, because they play an active role now in shared governance, which was not true prior to UPPI. And we realized this in this process that they were a missing voice that we wanted to include going forward. With their assistance and with the assistance and support of the faculty, we're going to change our program of study again and prioritize things like self-care, work-life balance, not just topics, but make sure that they have tools for time management. Something that we got feedback on from our alums through the Inspire Graduate Survey was Despite being very well prepared and despite feeling very well prepared and being very satisfied with their preparation experience, many talked about not feeling quite ready or that they didn't quite belong, which, of course, we know is a bit of a version of imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is something that we talk about and how it can matter and it could be a liability if not considered kept in check. So we work on that from the very beginning and that will be part of the UCAP experience. But what I hope I've conveyed is the change that we underwent in the UConn UPPI initiative couldn't have been without the support, without the help, without the leadership, without the contribution, without the endorsement of the faculty. And I've talked a lot about the role that adjuncts have played, but I had key and critical support from the tenured faculty. They participated despite being quite busy and carrying a significant load. They also provided the endorsement at the department and college and university level for the work that we were doing. And to this day, they continue to contribute and encourage me and others to produce scholarship around the lessons learned along the way. But just like for everyone, there's always that challenge for time. Richard, thank you so much for sharing um, your UConn story and your faculty story with us. I think that's a part of this kind of innovation redesign work that we don't pay enough attention to. So really appreciate your being so open about what happened at UConn. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much, Richard. We will be looking forward to seeing you at a UCA convention or when your next scholarship comes out. Thank you again. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank the Wallace Foundation for their support of this podcast and you, our listeners, for your commitment to improving educational leadership and policy to create equitable, ethical, and socially just outcomes for each child.